1: Email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Well, now we're bringing you our second Easter special. And this one originated from WGN in Chicago. The original air date is April the 5th of 1947, and the title is, I Beheld His Glory.
2: As its contribution to the commemoration of Easter 1947... WGN presents Everett Clark in I Beheld His Glory. I Beheld His Glory, the new story of the Passion Week, Palm Sunday through Easter, Three years ago, the Chicago Tribune ran a unique series of articles by Dr. John Evans, religious editor of the Tribune. Dr. Evans had discovered in St. Luke's writings in the New Testament the character of Cornelius the Centurion, who was serving with the Roman guard in Palestine. Dr. Evans presented the events of Holy Week as they would be seen and reported by Cornelius. The wide acclaim won by these articles suggested their use for a radio program presenting another facet of Easter's significance to the public. The first day reported, Palm Sunday.
0: Our journey up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover in the company of Herod, Rome's puppet ruler of Galilee in Perea, was uneventful. As military aid to this ruler, it was my duty to clear a way through throngs en route to the feast, and I felt I had succeeded. We departed four days ago from Tiberias, Herod's capital on the Sea of Galilee, and proceeded southward through Perea, east of the Jordan River. The sun is warm, and the rainy season is about over. Farmers are making ready for the barley harvest in lowlands. With the Passover only six days away... They must hasten with their harvest, because they must present the first tenth of the crop to the temple before the feast, else they will find trouble in delays in marketing the balance. At present, Judea is ruled by Pontius Pilate, a Roman military governor whose title is procurator. He has made many mistakes during the four years of his rule, but despite his unpopularity with the people generally, he manages to keep the peace and to get along with those temple authorities who are his stooges. But King Herod and Pilate are at alts, largely because Herod hates anything Roman and Pilate hates anything Judean. Herod's attitude is not surprising, because years ago Rome washed out of his princedom nearly all authority inherited from his father and reduced his power to that of Tetrarch, which is his official designation in Rome. The elevation of Caiaphas to the high priesthood by a predecessor of Pilate's a decade ago was a scandalous affair. Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas, still boss of the temple hierarchy, was then the high priest. But because he would not give in to Roman demands, the military governor threw him out and named Caiaphas in his place. Caiaphas' appointment was unpopular from the start and it is probable that most Judeans still regard Annas as the high priest. Thus, if the political scene is a mess in Judea, the religious situation is not much better. And now comes the crisis, a crowded Passover season. Vengefully foreseeing Pilate's troubles during the week, Herod had sought more and more speed through the lower faultlands. As higher country was reached and Bethany passed, I had increasing trouble in clearing a way through the crowds. Finally, just below the ascent to the east portal of Jerusalem, known as the Gate of the Lily, we appeared to be stalled. A vast throng had surged down from the city, singing a joyous welcome to another group which was proceeding toward the city. When the two met and refused to give way to Herod, I dismounted and forced my way into the crowd to find the cause of the demonstration. This I soon learned, for all hallelujahs were for one who was mounted on a donkey. Palms were waved over his head, and flowers and bright garments are strewn in his way. Hailing him as the new king, the son of David, the entire throng then struck up a chant, beginning with the ancient word, Hosanna, save us now. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the approaching kingdom of our father David. Save us in the heights of heaven. Pressing closer, it startled me to see who was receiving the regal welcome as one anointed of the Lord. It was that strange young man of Nazareth of whom I had heard much in Galilee. Although I never had actually met the young man, I had heard him speak in the new synagogue where I was always welcome, Roman that I am. On pressing closer to the center of the crowd, I was amazed to discover that Joanna, wife of Tutsa, steward of Herod's household, was in the young man's attendant group. Also, that street woman of Magdala, Mary, as well as a number of fisher folk I had seen with him in Galilee. The young man started to make his way toward me, but I could not withstand his glance. With a catch in my throat, I turned aside, routed the tetrarch's retinue around the young man's throng, and reported to Herod. He was first to speak. A fine day we live in, he exclaimed sarcastically, when a son of Herod the Great must turn aside for rabble. But Pilate will have plenty on his hands this week. Mark my words.
2: Cornelius and his servant Demetrius take up their quarters in one of the old castles in Jerusalem. The evening is uneventful and Cornelius resumes his report with Monday, describing the political unrest in Palestine during this feast of the Passover, 1914 years ago. The city of Jerusalem is
0: overrun by pilgrims from everywhere and money gushes over tradesmen's counters. Were it not for its pilgrim trade, Jerusalem would soon have grass growing in its crooked, narrow streets. It was with mixed feeling this afternoon that I crossed the stone bridge over the ravine toward the temple for the sacrifices. Missing was the kindly synagogue greeting as I entered the temple's outer court. Before me was a raucous scene, throngs seethed through the court bargaining and haggling for the purchase of sacrificial animals, Scores of priests were making ready for the ritual slaughter of the creatures which previously had been certified for sacrifices by the hierarchy. Lambs, bullocks, and turtle doves were confined to pens around the booths of concession operators. Brisk also was the sale of sacrificial oil, meal, wine, and incense. Prices for these sacrificial items soared as high as the traffic would bear, far above other markets in the city. Moreover, exchange rates for temple coinage necessary for sacrificial purchases are outrageous, and no attention is paid to the protests against those who control the temple monopoly. That monopoly is protected by Roman arms under agreements between Rome and the Judean National Council, the political Sanhedrin. All this traffic and commotion within the temple precincts was the cause of the universal dismay among the people over the present temple administration and its Rome-appointed high priest. A sudden outcry pierced the din. It was as though a hurricane had struck. Bulls toppled, lambs scurried here and there. Doves took to wing, and temple shekels clattered on the pavement. Concession operators clutched for their possessions amid milling pilgrims, at first struck rigid by the swift outbreak, Demetrius and I drew our swords, seeking cause of the uproar. A figure dashed across the pavement, swinging a lash in the backs of concessionaires, smashing booths and overturning money-changing tables. As I rushed toward this person, a strange, tense calm fell with the same suddenness with which the bedlam had begun. Standing there, confronting the throng which had frozen in its tracks, face ashen in anger, lash in one hand, the other raised high as though he would still a storm, was that young man of Nazareth. His voice rang out in the stillness. Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of
2: thieves. The unprecedented event in the temple has set Cornelius wondering. Not being a follower of the man from Nazareth, He cannot understand what compelled the young man to cause such a riot as took place when the money changers were scattered. He takes up with his report of Tuesday. While I am certain that the
0: young man of Nazareth faces trouble, even possible execution, yet nothing has happened of note since the sensational exploit yesterday in the temple, two things, however, mystify me as I reconstruct that scene. Why was it that I, a Roman officer of the law, was in some way constrained from arresting the young man? Secondly, how did he manage to disappear so quickly after he had spoken? As I puzzled over these questions, I noticed Joanna approaching from the temple. The sparkling little old lady listened to my questions, her eyes twinkling. There was nothing strange in the young man's disappearance, Joanna said half-mockingly. You Romans often go off the deep end when you're in Judea the young man merely walked out of the temple and proceeded to the home of friends in Bethany. Indeed, if you wish to arrest him, you will find him in the temple at this very moment. I protested that the last thing I should ever want to do would be to arrest the Nazarene. But why, I asked her, should he endanger himself by re-entering the temple today, knowing the wrath of temple authorities against him? Joanna replied that being a Roman, I probably wouldn't understand. You Romans are just little boys grown up into big bodies, Joanna said. But if you will listen carefully, I will try to explain it. You of the West are young. You know how to fight, administer civil law, and govern a whole world very well. We of the East are old folk, reflective, who see everything in the light of our mature religious culture. You of Rome have dreamed and fought for your imperial city that it might become the empire it now is. To what end? Materialistic magnificence. But what is that? You appear to rule over Judea and over Judeans scattered throughout your empire and in lesser civil matters. You succeed very well. Only to minds of the immature are civil laws of first importance. But among our people of Judea who are old from their cradles, your superficial rule is unimportant. Judea and Jerusalem are symbols of another kind of empire which military might can never dominate. Within each of us is a holy commonwealth, foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. It is in our marrow. You cannot understand it, but it is there. Drive us from this rock pile into Babylon, raise our temple, and the fortress of our sacred commonwealth becomes impregnable. Whensoever we may make government our only aim, we shall fail. But even then, our ideal commonwealth will persist. While you of the West become senile, we rejuvenate. Joanna's explanation helped somewhat, but I was assured that the high priest and his schemers would resent the action of the young man. And I was puzzled as to what means the high priest and his hirelings and the political Sanhedrin would use to proceed against the Nazarene. She nodded assent when I suggested stealth and urged that I should go to the temple at once to see if various groups were not now trying to trap him into criminal admissions. The greatest crimes against Rome are sedition and treason, whereas the highest capital crime among Judeans is blasphemy. But blasphemy has no standing in Roman law, under which all capital crimes are tried in Judea. As I crossed the bridge toward the temple, I recalled the regal greeting of the throng when a young man approached the city on the first day of the week. That, I thought, could lead to a seditious admission of kingship and constitute the first step toward a popular movement to restore in Judea the ancient kingdom of the great David. As I entered the temple, I noticed that the outer court had changed. The booths and exchange tables were there, but the concession operators were deprived of customers. Looking farther, I saw the reason. The usual throng of pilgrims was gathered around the young Nazarene, near the east portico, listening intently. Pressing into the throng, I heard a questioner ask, Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? The question put the young man on the spot. If he answered yes, he would alienate the vast majority of his followers who hate Rome. Should he answer in the negative, he would be accused of sedition against Rome. The crowd became very quiet. What would he say? Show me a penny, the young man replied quietly. Holding it high for all to see, he asked, Whose is this image and superscription? Caesar's, was the instant reply from his questioner. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the young man said, and to God the things that are God's. The crowd seemed to melt away, moving with a group toward the temple gate, I heard one remark sadly to his companions. He won every tilt with his accusers today, but I fear they will never rest until they convict him and have him sentenced to death.
2: The day following the attempt to trap the young Nazarene, no demonstration involving him took place. Cornelius assumes at first that Caiaphas might not take issue with the young man's outburst in the temple. He takes up his pen to report the events of Thursday, now called Monday, for the custom of washing the feet of the poor on this day. To Cornelius, this day is significant only in relation to the fate of the young man from Nazareth.
0: Today there came a summons from my former commanding officer, Military Tribune Rufus, of the 2nd Battalion from Italy, to appear for active duty at the garrison in the Tower of Antonia. Besides that came new information from Joanna, which made me fearful for the fate of the young Nazarene. Joanna's story, which was told to her by John, one of the Nazarene's 12 most trusted followers, is a disturbing one. Joanna made it clear that the action of the Nazarene in overturning booths and exchange counters in the temple was not the only count held against him by the chief priests. They have been determined for a long time to destroy him because of his huge followings, which they regard as a threat to the peace of Jerusalem and damaging to the good standing of the temple crowd in the sight of Rome. Once they caught him in what they called a blasphemous utterance, making himself the anointed of the Lord, the Messiah, miraculously escaped being lynched. And it was fortunate for the temple leaders that the young man was not stoned. Otherwise, they would have had a popular martyr on their hands with serious disturbances sure to follow. From what Joanna learned from John, it seemed that Sanhedrin clique had planned to await an occasion after the Passover to bring the Nazarene to trial. By that time, the pilgrims would be gone and the city quiet but something else has intervened, demanding immediate action. She said it appeared to be John's belief that new information against the Nazarene had come from a hidden source. On reporting to Rufus, I was assigned to lead a special detachment to guard the house of High Priest Caiaphas, clearing all neighboring streets at nightfall. Safe conduct into the High Priest's house was issued to only one person, a certain Judas of Kiriath, a village in Judea south of Jerusalem. I was told that the appearance of the man of Kerioth or the Iscariot was to be the signal for me to send a runner to call up heavier detachments of both the 2nd Battalion and the Temple Guard under Rufus' direct command. Night fell. Hours passed. Then a single figure slunk up the street northward toward the house of Caiaphas. He was stopped and passed successively by the sentries of my detachment. On his arrival at the door of the house, where I was stationed... ...he whispered hoarsely, I am the Iscariot. As a light through the open door shone in his face... ...he avoided my gaze. Hastening through the portal, he trembled. The swarthy face was drawn and pallid. I had seen that face before. The Iscariot was a member of the young man's company... ...when with palms and flowers, hallelujahs and hosannas... ...the Nazarene had been accorded his acclaim... On the first day of the week, here, thought I, is the source of the hidden information. A betrayal.
2: Thus did Cornelius learn of the young man's betrayal. His next report is one of the most grave and saddening he has ever written for it is the report of the ruthless execution which he can see from the window of his quarters, the report of the day which came to be called Good Friday. Events sometimes play cruel pranks. What I had
0: anticipated as a pleasant tourist holiday in this unique city, with its long history and strange daily life, has turned to tragedy, as my detachment now stands guard in this tower above the temple where priests are making ready for the sacrifices of Passover lambs that young Nazarene, convicted of treason against the person of Tiberius as emperor, is being executed on a cross outside the city wall. From this tower I could glance over the gate of Ephraim to that barren hill and see three crosses, one of which bears his body. The centurion dare not weep, and I averted my gaze from the scene. Last night, after the twelve had supped their last together... The infamous Iscariot had left the group to fulfill his agreement with Caiaphas. For money he had agreed to lead strong detachments under the command of Rufus to an unfrequented garden near the Jericho Road where the Nazarene would go for meditation and where an arrest on the charges which the temple bosses had trumped up could be made. Few of the Nazarene's admiring throng would be about at that late hour to make a disturbance. Hearings before former High Priest Annas and High Priest Caiaphas and an inner clique of the political Sanhedrin during the remaining night hours were planned to be followed by an early morning arraignment before Pilate, long before pilgrim throngs stirred in the streets. But a hitch caused their plans to miscarry. Although the chief priests at last won their case and the Nazarene was turned over to the military for execution, Pilate had shown great hesitancy in agreeing to demands for the young man's life. The trial dragged, with Pilate hedging and delaying, and the accusing priest becoming frantic. One accusation after another was dismissed after the Nazarene had been questioned by Pilate within the judgment hall. The crowds of mid-forenoon now filled the streets. Would they be rallied by some supporter of the Nazarene to drown out the shouts of, Crucify him, crucify him, from throats of temple concessionaires? The same thought must at last have occurred to Pilate. Riots before his judgment seat? Impossible. Again he brought the Nazarene from the hall to confront his accusers. A last chance. Again the frantic cries, crucify him. The figure crept close to Pilate and shouted, if you release this fellow, you are no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king speaks against the emperor. This charge was the climax. It was treason against the person of the emperor. Pilate yielded. The young man quickly was dragged away. Centurion Lentulus was assigned charge of the execution. Lentulus, a hard-bitten veteran, had had ample experience in such matters. Musing, I reviewed the tumultuous scenes with the false, trumped-up charges of the morning as I paced the observation ramp. I had scarcely noted a strange darkness which had fallen on the city, though it could be no later than the ninth hour, mid afternoon as I was about to call for the lighting of torches, the Tower of Antonia shook beneath us. Built within recent years to withstand the earthquakes common to this region, it was, I knew, safe. But I feared for the old palace of the Hasmonians, where Herod was residing. I would go there at once, I thought, and dispatch my men to the temple to prevent a possible stampede. As I moved past a west window, my eyes were drawn toward the hill beyond Ephraim's gate, where light was breaking on the darkness. Three crosses still there, but deserted. Light advanced as I quickened my pace toward the old palace. Streets were filled with hurrying folk. The terror with which the darkness and earthquake had stricken them was diminishing with the advancing light. A detachment of soldiers strode wearily past me toward the tower, their commanding officer following. It was Centurion Lentulus. He appeared broken and tried not to heed my salute. Failing, He came toward me and clasped my hands in his. His lips moved as if to speak. Standing there, both speechless, we heard a woman speak. It was Joanna, dry of eye, still sprightly beyond her years. You spoke rightly out there, Centurion Lentulus, she said, pointing to the hill beyond Ephraim's gate. He is the Son of God. Lift weight from your hearts. All is not over. Increase your faith. Lentulus then regained his speech, said he, I believe he is the son of God.
2: The conversion of so hardy and rough a man as Centurion Lentulus makes a deep impression on Cornelius. He has seen Lentulus butcher hundreds of captives without flinching. Yet the task of crucifying the young Nazarene has shaken what Cornelius believed to be complete emotional control. The strong impression made on Cornelius is reflected throughout his next writing, the report of Sunday, the greatest day
0: of the Holy Week. I had arisen long before the dawn this morning, and had gone out on the high gallery in the Tower of Antonia overlooking the temple. Looking down from the high gallery, I could discern priests moving about the court of the temple through the gray of the dawn, making ready for the morning sacrifice of the first day of the week. As I contemplated the activity below, Centurion Lentulus approached. He, too, had spent sleepless hours and spoke of the earthquake. He inquired about my presence in Jerusalem, and as I began to recount events of the months of my retirement from the 2nd Battalion, the trumpets sounded their fanfare below us. A gleam of the sun had shot across the hills of the plain of Moab. Priest born torches glowed red against the courts below. Soon the sound of singing arose from the temple. It was interspersed with the sound of silvery trumpets calling the assemblage to prayer. Aloft came the closing words of the psalm Who is this King of Glory? Even the Lord. But the final words were drowned out by armed men running toward us in the tower gallery. Breathlessly, they reported to Lentulus, their officer The earthquake, sir. The spokesman said. It tore away the stone which had been sealed into the door of the sepulchre. We were felled as with a blow. On regaining ourselves, we saw the stone had been rolled aside. On it sat one we scarce could gaze upon, for the brightness of his raiment and countenance. Though he seemed to smile at us, we fled. We were confused, sir. But as we began our flight, we passed two men running toward the tomb. We heard one say, He is risen. Then Tullus dismissed the detachment and we hastened toward the sepulchre set in its lovely rock garden. Bright flowers smiled from every crevice. Birds piped their most brilliant songs through the fresh spring air, through the fast-rising sun. There
2: rose before us
0: an empty tomb. The round stone door rolled aside. The seal of the Roman Empire upon it was smashed. We turned back toward the city speechless and sought Joanna. Radiant, she told her story. Very early before the dawn, Mary of Magdala, Mary, mother of James, and other women went to the sepulchre with spices which we had prepared. We found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and entering in, we found not the body of the Lord. While we were perplexed, two men stood by us in dazzling apparel. We were frightened and bowed down our faces, said they unto us. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you when yet he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise again. We remembered the words and returned from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to the rest. Some doubted, but Peter and John at once ran to the sepulcher after we had told them, and they too found it empty. Joanna added that all the young man's friends would meet after sundown and invited us to join them. After darkness had settled on the city, Joanna bade us go with her to a house where his followers were to meet behind closed doors for fear of the temple authorities. We gladly went. Many of the first doubts about the risen Lord had been dispelled. The Nazarene already had appeared to Clopas and another follower in the road to Emmaus. They told their story to our group. Then, even as their narrative was given, it happened. The risen Nazarene appeared in the midst of our company, his pierced hands raised in blessing as he spoke. Peace be unto you. As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins ye forgive, they are forgiven unto them. Whosoever sins ye retain they are retained. Go ye into all the world and preach the good news to the whole creation.
2: Here ends the report of Cornelius the Centurion. You have heard the reading of Dr. John Evans' series of articles called I Beheld His Glory. The writings of Cornelius the Centurion were read by Everett Clark. The program was produced by station WGN under the direction of Ed Kahn. This is WGN Chicago serving the Middle West.
1: Welcome back. Well, a unique special. It provides some political context to the events of Holy Weekend Easter. Now, it's worth noting that uh, they decided to go with a dramatic reading format for this particular special. While it was written as an essay, it could easily have been dramatized. In fact, five years later, it was. Cathedral Films, adapted it as a film that could be played on television, and it's since entered the public domain. The film runs about 55 minutes. I can see if you've only got half an hour why you might choose to do this instead. As you're able to communicate a lot of information and to... Use exposition to move through some scenes that would be kind of lengthy if you were going with a more full cast presentation. Giving the centurion the name Cornelius was an interesting creative choice, as there actually was a Cornelius, who was a centurion, who is a key figure in the biblical narrative, as the first uh, non-Jewish convert to Christianity, but also couldn't have fit the bio of this character, since he was, one, stationed uh, in another city and probably had nothing to do with the events of Holy Week, and didn't become a convert for several years later. Apparently, the author was going with the idea that Cornelius was a common name for Roman centurions. At any rate, we do turn now to listener comments and feedback. Sheila writes in regarding Sorry Wrong Number, Over on YouTube, this is one of my favorite movies. Absolutely love Barbara Stanwyck. And then uh, Martha writes, "Uh, I remember those days of rotary dial and cross lines. And remembering or understanding that is kind of key to enjoying sorry wrong number. Though I think that's probably less true of the movie, than it is of the radio version. And that's true of a number of telephone-based dramas, which can actually be really interesting. But to actually understand the drama and how things work, you really have to understand the telephone technology of the day. And that's going to be a challenge for younger generations. I remember a year or so ago coming across a Spider-Man novel from the 1990s where one of the key plots was Spidey had to get to a payphone. And this is an element that I think is going to be a challenge for younger generations to grasp. All right, well, that will actually do it for today. I want to thank everyone so much for listening, and I hope... Uh, Wherever you are, you have a wonderful Easter. We will be back with the amazing world of radio and our summer series that will be chosen by our Patreon supporters at patreon.greatdetectives.net on May 31st. As of this recording, I have no idea what they're going to choose, but I'm sure it'll be amazing and I hope you will listen in then. In the meantime, though, uh, from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.